Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Runners of NYC. I am your host, Chris Chavez, reunited with my co-host, Gene Mack. It's been a while since we've taped one of these together. I know. And this time we're back with some very exciting news, more than just being able to be together for this intro. The exciting news is that the Runners of NYC podcast is brought to you by Custom Performance Physical Therapy. We're so excited to be partnering with an organization who believes in bringing together members of the New York City running community just as much as we do. Yeah, they're super valuable for any local athletes like uh, myself. I am just a couple weeks away from my race at the Tokyo Marathon. Three and weeks, right? Yeah, that's coming up super quick. And if you're training for any spring race like the NYC Half, Boston Marathon, Brooklyn half or really anything they have some hands-on and one-on-one physical therapy services that come in handy after a long run or a hard workout there's nothing like compression boots for 30 minutes or some of their fresh legs hands-on services and their performance services include running analysis vo2 max testing lactate threshold testing bread and butter strength classes including one taught by very our very own friend of the pod matthew lukemeyer Custom Performance provides physical therapy, performance, and recovery services for runners of all abilities. You can follow them at NYCustomPT or check them out at www.nycustompt.com. As we say in every episode, thanks so, so much to everyone who has shared us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you tag us in your Instagram story, we'll be sure to repost it. And as always, you can leave a five-star review on iTunes, which will help new listeners find us. And then we can continue sharing some of these amazing stories with a wider audience. Yeah, and I think since the last time we taped one of these, we are also now on Spotify. And a lot of people have been listening on that. Our guest for this week is Malcolm Gladwell, who almost needs no introduction, but for those of you who are unfamiliar, he is the New York Times best-selling author of Outliers, Tipping Point, David and Goliath, What the Dog Saw, and Blink. You might also know his work from articles in The New Yorker, or as the host of Revisionist History, a podcast where he delves into events, people, idea, and things that are often overlooked and misunderstood. I'm a big fan of his, and he's been a longtime reader and a fan of everything that we've been doing at Sidious Mag. Yeah, and as a runner, Malcolm was a high school star in Canada in the 1500 meters. So we do take a little dive into his running roots and how he ended up running with the New York Harriers when he first moved to New York. We get to hear a few funny stories about him getting lost on the run in Tennessee, his goals for running as a master's athlete, why it might be nicer to be a mediocre runner at times, and a few of his searing hot takes on America's untapped resources for distance running. Yeah, so there's a little bit of geeking out on the professional running scene that Malcolm and I kind of get into. Uh, So bear with me and him if we get to be a little bit too nerdy. Uh, But once he really opens up about his own running career, it's a very interesting conversation. This episode was months in the making, and so we're finally happy to share it with you all. So without further ado, here's... Malcolm Gladwell. All right, so we're joined here by Malcolm Gladwell. Long-awaited episode. I think Gene and I have reached out to you a couple months back to make this happen, and uh, this entire time you haven't really been running. I have not. You... We're dealing, I think, with a knee injury for the past couple months. Are you back? Where, where are we at right now? I did 
six miles on Saturday. So, and was relative stiff the next day, but not sore. So I consider myself back. It was very slow. But um, yeah, I feel like when you post those runs on Strava, as so long as you make it clear you're coming back from an injury, <laughs> you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> no. And you were kind of injured beforehand for a few months. Correct? Yes, I haven't run. I this that was my first serious run since uh, July. Oh wow! So that was a, a long-lasting injury. Yeah. And I think you said earlier that it was tendonitis in your knee. I have n ongoing knee problems because I um, I have not been diligent about my you know strengthening exercises, flexibility, mm -hmm. etc. The running joke has been with Brooklyn Track Club because you did come to a couple of the workouts before this injury happened. Among us, we're all wondering, who was it that broke you? And that's like <laughs> that's what we're all talking about. It's like, well, you know, Gladwell hasn't been back in a couple of months. Someone here pushed it way too hard on these workouts. And it's, the problem was we were without a track for, for yes. months. Yes. I was uh, – nobody broke me. I was, um, I was very happy with the workouts. The, it, you know, we were – without the track, when we were on that kind of all race, just for those who don't – on like in a basically in a park mm -hmm. and you would round some corner and there would be like somebody with two dogs and a stroller and you right. you know you you would have to make an instant decision about whether to save the baby or yourself <laughs> it was like <laughs> and you saved the baby and that's how you ended up injured that's of right. course right. <laughs> naturally before that i guess there had been previous conversations that i think you and i have had about just running because we were able to go on a couple runs before that and I think we, we, we mentioned how you'd broken five in 2014 and, you know, there's the hope that maybe you can do it again at some point. Where are you right now, I guess, with running and in terms of just goals that you have for yourself? Well, I'm now, you know, I'm at the bottom of my new age. I am 55. Mm. So I am at the bottom of the of a new age category, which is always very exciting. <laughs> when you're, this is the most exciting thing about age class running. But there's a, a former... So I would like to break five again. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel I could have done it last year if I had not got injured. And I ran, early in the season last year, I ran 18-11. And I think I would like, to, and I'd like to be able to break 18, which I haven't done in a couple mm. of years. Yeah. But I came close last year. And I'm, I think I've been doing so much strengthening that I think I'm optimistic about having a good season. At what ages do you think breaking five is impressive? like the youngest you can be and then like the oldest. Oh, I see. Well, I, well, I, you know, I first broke five minutes for the mile as a 12 year old, I think. Oh, wow. That's pretty young. So, uh, now I haven't done that thing that that, who's the, mi who's the marathoner who's done it every year for 40 years or 35 years? Steve. Steve Spence, I Steve think. Steve Spence. Mm -hmm. So he, I didn't, I skipped 30 years in the middle. Mm -hmm. So I don't, <laughs> I have no, but I think, if I could break five as a 60-year-old, that would be an extraordinary accomplishment. I mean, I know how hard it is at my advanced age, but um, just staying healthy. Yeah. Um, if you can stay healthy, though, I feel like it's not, a, it's not impossible. Like, you get your speed work in in the summer, and it's, it's all doable. Yeah. Um, so you started running at a very early age then, if you first broke five at age 12. <laughs> I like started running at 12, I think. Okay. Uh, yes. I ran uh, in, I went to high school very early. So I, I st started running in my first year in high school. Okay. 
and uh, in Canada, we're breaking Canada. the secret that you're Canadian. Yes. <laughs> it's probably not a secret, <laughs> but we're getting it out in the open. <laughs> yes, I'm going to come clean and say that I'm from <laughs> Canada. Um, and uh, then had a very brief, uh, a good but brief career as a high school runner. Okay. And then I was basically done until I was 50. <laughs> nice. There's still that pride, though, among like the Canadian high school champions i guess like the the equivalent of i guess what would be like a state champion out here mm-hmm. you managed to win one of those titles yeah, right so the big the big high school meet in canada is called ofsa mm-hmm. it's the mm-hmm. ontario and to win ofsa is like the biggest thing that can happen to you as a human being as a <laughs> in in canada and i you know uh alex hutchinson mm-hmm. won ofsa many times okay i won ofsa once came but second. you're in the class so. i'm in the class <laughs> All, in fact i was uh, alex who i know I was very proud of his high school career, as he should be. But I pointed out to him that his winning time at OFSA in the youngest category, age category, 1,500 meters, was slower than mine. So oh. I'm, I have that over Alex. <laughs> and I've been telling the world as, as uh, far wide. I find this really interesting that kids growing up now, I mean, there are Canadian stars that are popular here in the United States but when it comes to runners. I mean, Kevin Sullivan might have been one of those guys in the early 2000s and maybe late 90s who was getting some recognition for you when you were growing up what was that like because nowadays i mean a kid in idaho could pull up an instagram and follow justin knight and all of a sudden become like a huge justin knight fan and for you i guess what was it like i guess getting news about other runners and then at the same time who did you look up to well it's funny because it is it is markedly different you knew very little about your peers Mm -hmm. particularly those who are outside of your region like, I had no idea what people were running in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Or no idea what, what like, one of, the, one of the fascinating questions we always had was, we didn't know whether Americans were running as fa- our age were running as fast as we were. We had no way of finding out. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, when I was 14, I ran uh, 405, 1500 meters. I did not know, I literally did not know whether people in America were within were 10 seconds faster, five seconds, I mean, but I did know, all you did know was what was happening at an elite level. Mm-hmm. So I got my track and field news and I, you know, I was obsessed with Sebco and Brendan Foster and Steve Ovette and I knew my Canadian people and then that was it. I knew Steve Scott, but I didn't, I couldn't tell you a single thing about, you know, the the 10th ranked NC2A mm-hmm. 5K runner. Um, because I had no access to that information. Yeah, and so when when you're kind of like that much, and were you a big track junkie back in the day? You love the elite side of the sport now, but yeah, back I've then. I've always been, I always, I never stopped following the elite, uh, elite track and field. I still think of it as the greatest. Um, uh, it's the greatest of all sports. It's the, it's the most beautiful and the purest and the, um, uh, so yeah, I've always that that what's different now is that uh, because I just we have all have access to so much more. It's possible to be a fan of of is her, I always forget how to I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Who's the extraordinary New York um, female runner? Tui is her last name. Tui. Oh, yeah. Uh, Caitlin Tui, like Caitlin a high Tui. school oh. runner yeah. right now. Tui. Yeah. I don't know how to, I never know how to pronounce that. Yeah, mm-hmm. like so. I mean, I never met Caitlin Tui. I'm desperate to watch her run. Like, but that notion that you would really, really want to run a, watch a 15-year-old run a race was unheard of in my day. Like, because you just, you would know, you know, you just didn't know what was going on at that level of, 
of, uh, of running. So, so it's, it's so much more engrossing now. Yeah. Also the fact that you can kind of know a little bit about these people themselves. Like when I was growing up, we obviously had things like mile split and let's run message boards. We had a lot of results that were being thrown around. So I was aware of, you know, how fast people in other states and uh, like maybe even some Canadians were running, but I didn't like know who they were in such a way that things like social media makes accessible now where you can kind of like get a feel for a 15 year old's personality because they have such a public facing entity. It's just like adds kind of a bit of just more of an enticing storyline, I guess. You you can really like sense the person behind these results instead of just a name. Yeah. I mean, this actually (coughs) brings up a point that I've often thought about track and field. The track and field if you look at the sport that has done the best over the last 15 years is basketball. Mm-hmm. And it's done the best because basketball is perfectly suited for the social media age, right? And we, we, we know, in exactly the way you're just talking about, Jane, we know, we feel we know these, all these basketball players. We mm-hmm. see them, we recognize their faces. If Kevin Durant walked in this door, you know, we would know instantly it's Kevin Durant. There would right. be no hesitation about you know this <laughs> dude who's six foot ten. Yeah, he'd have to duck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but track and football has suffered, mm. I think, because it is not perfectly suited for the social media age. There's, they're not differentiated in the same way. We can't rec- we don't recognize them. They're not. They're not. It's only you know there's 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 a zillion of them on the sideline, not mm. just five playing most of the game. True. Track could do what basketball does. There. There's a possibility we should kn- we should know and we should understand the personalities of all of these people in the same way that we understand Steph Curry and Katie and LeBron. And I, I almost feel like when I read you know message boards or Let's mm-hmm. Run or whatever, I almost feel like any track athlete who has a personality and wants to express it, people look down their noses at them or roll their eyes a little they bit. They immediately or, call it out and like, like how fake it is. It's yeah. fake. It is. It's like ridiculous. It's like this is a sport that we're trying to promote. And if I think that, you know, that uh, uh, that Matt Sensowitz, I mean, I follow him on Instagram. I'll be honest. <laughs> I go, go Matt. Like, you know, go cr- do it. Do even weirder stuff. Like, <laughs> that's you know, I think that's fantastic. That's just it makes me feel like when I when he races, it makes me have much more of a connection to what's yeah. going on on the track. Do you think it's because? Sometimes people might be a little afraid to play a villain role in like, especially like within, say there was like a rivalry, quote unquote, between like Matt Centrowitz and someone like Andrew Weeding back in the day. Mm-hmm. That Matt Centrowitz might be a little hesitant to play up the, the villain role there in a sport that is kind of like clouded with, you know, doping and all this kind of stuff where bad guys are also in that category. Yeah, maybe. I mean, runners by distance runners in particular by... Um, uh, are characteristically more introverted and genteel. I mean, you can't be someone who <laughs> devotes hours and hours and hours to a solitary pursuit that requires an extraordinary amount of self-discipline and sacrifice and be wild and crazy, right? Let's just not allow wild and crazy. So we're, at, we're operating at a little bit of a disadvantage, but that's not to say we are without personality, mm-hmm. um, and we shouldn't be encouraged to, to uh, you know, show our interesting sides. Um, so I don't know whether it's about, I think it's more about just the kind of general expectation that we're all going to be mousy and boring. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel like everybody kind of points to 
the fact that there aren't strong beefs or rivalries like Chris is talking about, like the fact that there's not a reason to watch someone step on the track to try to like embarrass someone else because runners are so interconnected that everyone wants to be friends, which is really nice and <laughs> admirable. <laughs> but that's what gets blamed for running not being more interesting or accessible to people who aren't runners. And I sort of see that, but I also agree with what you're saying that I would still watch if there were just like very kind of strange out there personalities, regardless of whether they were vicious and like wanting to demolish everyone else they were racing against or not. Um, but yeah, do you have any runners that you watch because of their personality only? Not because of, well, I watch because of their running personality um like i you know like many runners i'm not afraid to say that i spend an awful lot of time watching old races on youtube <laughs> and i was watching some old alan webb races and there's a i think it was in a 5k in a world championship or in a major event where he did this kind of bananas surge in the middle of the race do you remember this mm -hmm. um maybe with like a mile or so left mm. he does he just throws down this absurdly fast and of course it destroys him and <laughs> he ends up doing but I, you know, my heart went out to him. I was like, good mm. for you. Like, it was this kind of ballsy. And I feel like his perspective was, why not? I mean, yeah. I'll probably lose. Maybe he felt he was going to lose anyway. And his only chance was to do something. And I felt the same way with, you know, on the flip side, I wish there was more of that ballsiness when uh, Mo Farah was running on the track. Mm. Very, a lot of people just seemed to concede at the gun. I mean, they would like, they would, if, if you're not going to take it out hard, you're going to lose, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no question Farron is prime was going to outkick you. And the kind of willingness of people not to, to sort of play it safe always struck me, always disappointed me. So I sort of like it when someone does something um, dramatic on the track. And I'm drawn to that, uh, uh, to those kinds of displays of those sort of, um, uh, uh, those, those uh, out-of-the-box displays of... Mm -hmm. With <clears throat> Canadian distance running right now, I think we're seeing like a big rise in you know some of the top stars where Cam Levins ran a really good marathon, uh, Justin Knight and Ben Flanagan are having great showings. Like It had great showings on the NCAA scene, and now they're turning professional. So kind of going back to just general uh, Canada and American training, I mean, did, have, did you notice anything that was different about your high school training experience when discussing it with Americans later on years years down the road where you were just about the way you trained and maybe what you guys focused on in your development at that time? I don't know, that's interesting I, because I didn't know, I mean in retrospect looking back on my high school training, we did <coughs> um, way, way, way fewer miles than our contemporaries and way more uh, speed work like lots and lots and lots of high quality stuff, which in retrospect, it's probably a bad idea, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I think at that age, you don't want to burn yourself. It, it might not be a bad idea for yeah. younger runners. Yeah, at you know, 14, 15, 16. But I, I mean, I don't think as a high school runner, I ever ran more than 25 miles a week. Wow. Wow. Uh, but a lot of super high quality hmm. hill work and speed work. Um, but it would have been really, I mean, that's another, that's the other part of this, the difference in eras is that when you don't have access 
easy access to what your peers are doing around the world. You also don't have easy access to their training Mm-hmm. Schedule. And it's just really interesting now to be able to say, oh, this is what the kind of norm is, or this is what people on the West Coast are doing, and, and adjust your training. Mm-hmm. We were really training in a bubble almost. Um, and so that, that the fact that I cannot even tell you to this day what my peers were doing is, is like speaks to what was going on back in the, it's the 70s, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> After high school, I guess, what was that process like? You went to the University of Toronto. Was there active, just I guess, recruiting for you to run in yeah. college? Or Nobody, did you? Yeah. not a single person ever wanted me to <laughs> ask me that. I didn't run in my senior year because I got injured in high school. And then I went to U of T and I, then I walked on the track club, track team, because I was pursuing a girl mm. who was on the track team. And so I started running in an attempt to kind of court her. It's just like, <laughs> so... I it's honestly running. a recurring theme that we've had <laughs> here on the podcast. <laughs> People start running to get girls. <laughs> exactly. And we would go, uh, we ended up doing a, uh, we built up to a 15 mile, we used to do a 15 miler on Monday nights. And it was only after like months of this that I worked up the courage to ask her <laughs> out. But I, so I started to, for the first time in my life, do serious miles and ran indoors one season in college. Hmm. It's actually the great. It's the greatest regret of my life that I didn't, um, and that I didn't race more. Um, the uh, in that when I was at my in my kind of physical prime. Um, yeah. How often do you think about that? If you, oh, if all the time. Because I, you know, I know that I wasn't. You know, I was. We the, the great. There were some great world class runners in my peer group, um, and they were clearly a, a standard deviation mm-hmm. better than me. So <laughs> I don't. I don't. I never harbor any hopes that I could have been um, an elite runner, but I could have been a sub elite runner. Mm-hmm. I mean, a comfortably sub elite runner, um, uh, and I would love to have. You know, could I have run a fourteen, fifteen, five k on the roads at the age of twenty? I think so. Could I have run three forty five for fifteen hundred meters? I think so. I That's mean, it's really good. Yeah, uh, that would have been nice to have him. Nice feather to have in my cap. Do you um, think those are kind of your ideal events? Would you have tried to go further in distance or do more road I running? Ideally, I like to go down. The, the race I really loved uh, was the 800. Okay. Um, I wasn't probably, I, my, my brother was a, actually a much more talented runner than I was and was a absolutely superb 400, 800 runner. Hmm. And this is gonna, I love boasting about my brother. My <laughs> brother, it should be clear, never trained so he would go to <laughs> one i don't know if that counts as boasting <laughs> he would go to one track practice a week on the basis of one track practice a week he ran as an 18 year old 17 year old uh a 50 point 400 meters wow now but that was not his best event his best event was the 800 wow. now imagine running an 800 on one so he i i think he could have run i think he could have been a almost an elite half mile because he would go i would sometimes coax him and he would go running he'd run like six miles with me and would effortlessly keep up <laughs> like this is a guy you've never trained <laughs> so anyway <laughs> i think the gladwell genes i feel like <laughs> skew fast and so i mean my mom is jamaican you'd think that there would be so in my fantasy it was always that i was a really a, a half miler mm-hmm. who was masquerading <laughs> as a middle distance runner 
when you started getting into running, I guess, how did you discuss discuss it with your parents much? I guess when it, like knowing that this is this is in your genes. A little bit. I mean, my mom had a cousin who was a who was uh, went to the Commonwealth Games, mm. and my father was a runner in high school. But they were they were completely uninterested in <laughs> sport and remained uninterested in sport. My father uh, could never keep the distinction between hockey and baseball straight in his mind. <laughs> he was always referring to baseball as hockey and hockey as baseball. Um, and he never even he didn't. They were very interested in hearing about running, but they it never occurred to them to go to my meets. And then once he went to one of my meets, and as I was running my race, he got distracted and volunteered to rake the long jump pit, <laughs> and so we missed the race. <laughs> Which I actually, at the time, thought this was fabulous because it was like zero pressure. Like, today, yeah. I guess parents come to see everything, but yeah. back then, like, it just was not an expectation, and so if you screwed up, like, you never <laughs> had to explain to your parents because your parents didn't know. Like, they, they weren't watching. They were breaking the long jump pit. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so after college, I guess, what was your running I guess career like. I mean, how, how just recreationally? How often did you try and do yeah, it? I would go out and run every. I would have. What would happen is I would run, and then I would get more and more serious, and I'd get obsessive, and then I would get injured, and I would quit for two years, and then I would start up again. Mm. So I just had these little um, starts and stops, but I wouldn't race. I didn't really race, so I was running, but I was never racing. And actually, the truth is, I don't like racing. I really like hmm. training. Um, and so I would quite happily train. Um, and I would even do, for years, you know, I would go to the track and do interval workouts by myself just for the fun of it. I actually, because I really like interval workouts, weirdly. <laughs> and I like doing hills, so mm -hmm. I could do hill workouts. But I, it didn't occur to me to race until I was doing interval workout by myself at the East River track. And then all these people from the Harriers were there. And I just joined with them one day and realized, oh, it's actually more fun to run with people. And then... Uh, then I raced, although I get so terribly, I get so nervous, mm. and I've always been this way, and it's the only thing in life I get nervous about, is mm -hmm. racing. I get nervous weeks beforehand, like, oh, wow. the thought of running the Fifth Avenue Mile, right now, it's January, the thought of running it in September, <laughs> makes me nervous right now, I'm nervous right now, just thinking about it. Wow. And it, I mean, obviously, that's a race where I think maybe you now have, you probably have a really good chance at, like, the Masters title there, right? What's the closest you've come? No, there's some there's some dudes uh, in this in the some who I don't even know how they do it who are well into their fifties who are running four forty. Wow. Uh, and I I don't think I can run four forty. Yeah, Fifth Ave kind of it attracts a lot of you know high quality athletes. So. Yeah, there what? are these you know there are these kind of <clears throat> I'm in the normal distribution and then there are people who <laughs> are outside the distribution. Yeah, what's that starting line like for the Masters race at Fifth Ave? Are, are people looking around and asking around like what's your PR and like or is it just there is there a feeling of just You're all right. asking what the old folks do? Yeah. <laughs> it's um You could easily get into the media mile and finish top 5. <clears throat> yeah, but I don't want to run the media mile. Like I feel like that's cheating. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was third, and then I was sixth, and now I was tenth. But uh, <laughs> I'm I'm slowly but falling. But the winner of last year's media mile was f like 4:30, wasn't it? Yeah, it's getting quicker. I think the hype is building up in the media mile. Did Paul Snyder run it? No, Paul has not run He's it. He's never run it. Um, I think he 
was thinking about it this year, but I think Liam Boylan Pet. Oh, that's ran, right. Yeah. Oh, that's he right. finished second. Yeah. He got outkicked by a uh, someone from Runner's World. It was a kid fresh oh, out of college. Runner's World guy. Those guys are legit. Yeah, Runner's World f- comes out with a team of like five or six runners, and they've been training weeks and weeks for it. So I think yeah. like they should have their own heat. Yeah. No, I finished as high as fourth. That's really year, good. Uh, in my in the f- over fifty bracket, they don't break out the over fifty fives. So mm. I um, so I'm you know I'm doomed to compete with younger and younger mm. people in my age bracket every year. So you mentioned the Harriers, and that's kind of, I guess, one of the first groups that I guess you, you ran with here in New York. Um, but before that, I guess, like, how, how much time was there between, I guess, you worked at the Washington Post for a while, and then landing eventually and being based here in New York. Uh, w- what was the time, I guess, like, the, the timeline between all these events in terms of, like, getting in, involved in the New York City running scene? Oh, well, I was here for – I ran on my own in New York for – 20 years before uh, uh, getting involved. Maybe I came to New York in 93. That's when I was born. (laughs) So embarrassing. (laughs) I'm so old. Um, But you had been working. So you graduated University of Toronto and moved to the States after that for a job, but Uh, not to New York. No, I started in D.C. I was in D.C. for the first 10 years. Okay. um, Working for the Washington Post. And I ran... With a with a uh, a kind of fun runners group in um, D.C., and then I um, came here and just ran casually until 2014 or 13. 13. Okay. So actually, uh, yeah. So I don't even know how many years that is. Uh, about yeah, 20 years. Uh, I just sort of ran on my own, and then I, um, uh, in fact, I think it, the. Last competitive 1500 meters I ran was in on, on an outdoor track was uh, in 1978. Oh wow! And then nothing happened until 2013. So that is uh, <laughs> that's a long hiatus. A long hiatus. <laughs> long hiatus. <laughs> yeah, we're just kind of working our way into the normal question we usually open this podcast with is like. When did you get to New York? What brought you to New York? So you're, we're kind of finally <laughs> arriving <laughs> oh, there. Um, and for oh. you, was that work? Yes. So I uh, be- came to New York to be the New York bureau chief of the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in I didn't want to leave New York. So I had to leave, th- you know, instead of being recalled back to Washington, mm-hmm. I quit and joined, got a job at the New Yorker mm-hmm. and uh, stayed. And so I have been here um, ever since. With the Harriers and when you decided to become a part of that group, I, I nowadays there's so many different groups and clubs all throughout the New York City running scene. And for you, I guess, you, even this in the 90s when you're running kind of recreationally and casually, what was your observation about the structure of New York City's running scene? I mean, the NIAC has been around for yeah. years and years, and Central Park Track Club has been around for many years but now there's this boom but for you from an outsider looking in what was what was it like it was just well, i was totally unaware of it i didn't even occur to me that i could join a running group mm-hmm. i don't know why i just never <laughs> crossed my mind i was running for years and years and years by myself you know endless um treks around the reservoir <laughs> um and uh and then and then like it was just this chance running into the harriers and then it was only then that i understood that there was you know, we would start going to team races and things, and I would understand that there was this massive community of, of, um, of people. 
And I, you know, part of it was this really interesting thing that, um, and I, it's, I'm going to sound very naive, but um, I had had this notion from, because I was a very good high school runner, I had it in my head that running was pointless unless you were um, really good hmm. and that it wouldn't be fun if you were mediocre. And then now that I'm a mediocre runner, <laughs> I realize that being a mediocre runner is actually even more fun. In fact, in fact, I think I would rather be a mediocre <laughs> runner than a good one at this point. Um, Why is that? Can you just talk a little it's bit? Because like, then you can just enjoy it for what it is. And you don't have any great expectation of winning everything. And the pressure is, cause I, because remember, I hate racing. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it, that was this epiphany that happens to me at the grand old age of 50 that like <laughs> actually it's fine I can just join a group of people and we'll run like nice times but not amazing times mm -hmm. and I'm never going to win another race as long as I live but like <laughs> it's like better to do that and then I was even I was even thinking that if I were to be an elite runner I've often asked myself this way, so suppose I was going to be I had a choice I could be an elite runner and I, my choice could be I could be one of the in the top 10 in the world, or I could be somewhere between 30th and 40th in the world in the 1500 meters. What would I rather be? And the answer is I'd rather be between 30th and 40th. Interesting. I'd rather be running 336 hmm. than 331. And the reason is if you run 336, <laughs> you're, if you win a race, it's like, whoa, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's an amazing accomplishment. But secondly, what you do is you go to Europe. You hang out, you live on $10 a day, <laughs> and you run like a lot of B meets, and you have a blast. And yeah. you go out and you, you know, you go drinking with your friends after the race is over, and you come home, and it's like, it's like you're, you know, you're like having a, it's like you're hitchhiking across Europe, essentially. Mm. Whereas if you run 331, it's a job, mm. right? And everything's a crisis. And when you don't win the race you're supposed to win, it's like your life is falling apart and you have 17 people trailing you and mm. you got a shoe sponsor who's threatening you if you don't succeed. I mean, that just doesn't sound like fun. Mm -mm. I feel like some 336 runners out there might be a little, <laughs> <laughs> might have a bone to pick with you. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean they that, that it might still be pretty hard to run 336. Oh, no, no, no. I'm like, not saying it's not. But there's not as much pressure. It's, the, it's the absence of the pressure. It's super. It's still, yeah. it's just as hard right, in terms right. of, but it's, there's not all of the, uh, maybe I'm romanticizing it, but I just think of like the, the idea that there's enormous sums of money at stake and agents harassing you and like people calling you a failure if you become in third as opposed to second. Right. All of that stuff is just the stuff that I, as a runner, wouldn't be interested in. That I would like to go to the, what I want to run is the Belgian B meets. The Belgian like B meet. I think the Belgian and the Irish circuit sounds fantastic to me. Like that just sounds like, that would be really, really, really fun. Yeah, and that it, makes more sense. I yeah. think now that I'm understanding that it's not about the fact that they don't have to put in as much time. Oh God, to no! Train. They probably put in more effort. I right, mean, that's right. yeah. That, that like the fact that you really enjoy the training more than the racing means that you wouldn't care if it was if it took just as much effort during the regular like season of training and then once you got to like the actual racing season yeah if that part was just a little just, bit yeah less it just would be more like <laughs> less intense more a kind of um and there's more uh i don't know there's something to be said for uh it's the it's the amateur ethic it's the it's mm. the sort of english 
my half my my dad was English, and he was very much in the spirit of that of the English amateur. Like, it, they, it, anything worth doing was was worth doing in a, at a mediocre level. According <laughs> to my father, he never wanted to be <laughs> perfect at anything. He wanted to be like, you know, he he built his own greenhouse, and he was proud of saying there wasn't a single right angle in the whole thing. <laughs> like, the fact that it, it worked, but it was like, if you looked at it, it was like kind of slightly off, and he was fine with that. Like, that was his kind of ethic, and I love that notion of, you don't have to be the greatest piano player in the world. Just be like a good enough piano player and enjoy piano playing the piano. Like Interesting. <laughs> I like that ethos. The Great British Baking Show is making more sense to me right now, too. <laughs> Everything's starting to click. Um. So for, I guess, like as much as you follow this elite side of the sport and uh, how much you, you love it, it's I don't feel like it's the subject of your work too often. And a lot of people, I mean, this has been probably me- like mentioned on Let's Run message boards or people have probably tweeted at you just like, when can we get like an episode of like revisionist history or a chapter in one of your books about something and running? And I guess like, why is it, I guess, that you hold back on doing it? Because I don't know what to, like, there are two things in my life that I, I'm experts in. Mm. I'm expert in cars, and I'm an expert in, like, I'm a, uh, in elite track and field. Like, I have 30 years of quite in-depth <laughs> knowledge about who ran what when. But I don't know what to say about it. I don't know how to, it's much easier to do stories about things you don't know anything about, where you discover it along with the reader or the listener. But, uh track i just i completely have no idea what other what non-track fans will find interesting about track i don't know um i would sooner i'd be more likely to do a a show about cycling than i would be about track Hmm. just because it's somehow easier to get into it um but i mean i know if i was doing a show that was just for for serious track fans that that's one thing but i don't I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm writing for a generalist or, or right. doing shows for a generalist audience. So I don't. I'm constantly puzzled. I, I'm open to suggestion. If someone can give me a good idea to do, but um, I thought of doing one actually on the the London women's 1500 meter final, where so many of the uh, top finishers have been mm, busted for doping. Yeah. But I don't know where that goes. Right. Like, what's the story once you've made that observation? It's not like you can rerun the race years later. Well, I think that's part of the story almost is like following up with the people who have been awarded medals. Like, how does that feel? Like, what did they actually want to happen? I mean, yeah, it's kind of like an unsatisfying story, but I think because it's an unsatisfying thing that happened to them. Yeah, yeah. There are other interesting stories that would be great to do, but they can't be done. So, like... Imagine if he would agree to talk, um, uh, sitting down with Ashbel Kiprop and having him explain what happened. When mm-hmm. when did he start? Well, he's actually doing TV interviews in Kenya right now, like oh, in the is? past couple of weeks. Like there's YouTube clips of him professing his innocence. So I guess for the listeners who aren't as familiar, Ashbel Kiprop, Olympic yeah. champion in the 1500 meters, tested positive for EPO and swears that it was this cover-up. It's really bizarre yeah. um, where he was extorted for money and, and all this kind of stuff. But he's out there, and he's, to this day, I guess, professing his innocence. And it's Malcolm showing me right now. It's a background on his, uh, his phone. So you believe him? 
on my phone, the screensaver is Ashbel Kiprop. <laughs> that, I think, tells you everything you need to know about my love of track and field. <laughs> but I was devastated. I mean, I don't want him. I mean, maybe he is innocent. I have no idea. But getting the, the story of why people feel compelled to cheat. Because mm. they do. It's not a, I don't think it's an, I don't think it's an idle decision. I think people get, people convince themselves they have no choice or they convince, you know, there's something complicated and fascinating that goes on behind that. Um, and I, I think a kind of, Laying that bare would be that would be a great story, but I just I just don't know that anyone would ever participate in such a thing. Yeah. Um, but how do you kind of zero in on the stories that you do end up telling through vi revisionist history or in your books? Like I know there's a lot of research that goes into the writing of almost all of your books, but which stories like kind of come to you as ones that are worth going down the research rabbit holes that you do? Yeah. Uh, I don't have a good answer to that because the um, I'm in a constant state of panic about <laughs> where these stories are going to come from next. <laughs> so I'm in one right now, actually. I'm very close to despair about the upcoming season of Visionist History. Um, <clears throat> but usually what happens is if you panic enough, <laughs> then at the very, very last moment, something emerges and you seize on it. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I agree with that. <laughs> but, it, you know, the... The other thing is in journalism, generally speaking, if you just, other journalists, all journalists know this, if you just start talking to people, mm -hmm. stories typically emerge that you're panicked only because you haven't started talking to people. And then the other thing is um, the solution is always that you turn one episode into two episodes. <laughs> That's <laughs> the genius. <laughs> how, and I guess running, bringing it all together, how does that play a role in maybe sometimes brainstorming these ideas have any of these episodes or chapters just occurred to you in the middle of a run or do you use running as a break like when you're just so deep into research and all this kind of stuff where you're just like i need to get out for five or six miles yeah sometimes sometimes it does uh i mean it, it's it is the any kind of alone solitary alone time which is incredibly difficult to come by these days, mm. is of usefulness to people who are in a creative profession. So I think, and I think something about, there's something hypnotic about a long run. And I, you know, I never ran longer than an hour until three years ago. Wow. And then I discovered long runs and I'm in love with them. Of course they make my chances of getting injured <laughs> um, exponentially greater, but um, that I, the whole second hour of a, or after the first hour, really. Mm -hmm. There's something magic about that in terms of what your brain starts to do that I found incredibly, it's not necessarily that things come to me in that, but just that once I've gone through that experience of, of having all of the excess energy kind of drained from my body, um, that feeling of kind of peacefulness and is incredibly conducive to um, creativity and... Um, Particularly if you, I never do a long run. I always do them in nature because I go mm. up state on the weekends. Um, and that's special too. I mean, I don't think I would feel the same way if I was doing my 12 miles down the West Side Highway <laughs> in Manhattan. 
I see people do that, and I just think, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> that's like what I do, yeah. Doing this, you're doing this incredibly beautiful thing, like, in the worst possible place. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, having spent two years in Flagstaff, where you can literally get lost in pine needle-covered trails for probably oh, 10 like hours at a time. Yeah, it's heaven. And How it's, did you move to New York? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you must love New York, too. You said you didn't want to go back to D.C. when that opportunity Well, no, that came. was for professional reasons. I didn't gotcha. want to. I was finished with being a newspaper writer. Um, Do you not actually enjoy living in the city? Uh, well, I'm sorry, what was the question? You're I not, guess. Well, I didn't hear. I just didn't um, hear. I just, yeah, was wondering if you do not actually enjoy living in the city, if New York is not oh. your favorite place to live. No, I don't mind it. I don't have any, uh, I don't have special, some people have this kind of deep, visceral, I, sus I suspect Chris has this deep, visceral attachment to New York City. <laughs> I do. <laughs> he does. Um, I don't. I could, I could easily live in 10 other American cities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so would you, do you not consider yourself a New Yorker? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm Canadian. I'm I'm, a, I'm an interloper. I don't. Um, gotcha. But, I'm on uh, hiatus from Canada as well. Yes, <laughs> but I'm at on some hiatus. Point you'll go back. And I don't. Weirdly, I I use criteria for best place to run as really high up in my in how I rank cities. Interesting. Um, and uh, this is just not a good city to run in. I mean, there's two places to run, mm. unless you get in your car, or you get on the subway and you go all the way up to you know Van Cortlandt Park. Right. But you're stuck with the, with the bridle path, and um, and the West Side Highway. Like that's like, how good. And then in Brooklyn, it's just the same endless <laughs> route around Prospect Park. I don't know. I just like it's just. And you got to eat. You're 40 minutes on the subway to get to these places. It's just the whole thing is ridiculous. Like, but yeah. it, you know, Portland. Can you imagine stepping out of I your can, front door? I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Forest that, Park, right? Uh, so that just sounds like so, mm. y you know, so there's, there are. Colorado too, right? Doesn't that <laughs> sound nice? <laughs> now, now I'm just fantasizing over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we first went on our run together, you took me through Central Park. I guess we did a couple loops of the, uh, the reservoir. What's your typical usual running route? I guess when you're when you're healthy, you told me. I guess you and former Sports Illustrated writer David Epstein would just crush that same route over and over and over again. David, uh, well, David, who is uh, a uh, far better than I am, uh, who's who went, he's sort of effortlessly fit. He and I and a bunch of other people uh, used to do the hill. Used to do stairs in Fourteen Park. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. We used to do. F uh, 40 times up and down. Um, uh, and we did that for years. And without ever knowing, by the way, no one's ever told me whether that's a good workout or not. Is it <laughs> useful? Is it, does it, I mean, I don't know. We just like, we just sort of hap we started doing it and then we were like sort of adding more and more stairs and you're certainly tired at the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have the same question because in college, a lot of the, different sports teams not track and not cross country but rowers and i think like soccer did stadiums right where you go At Harvard, right? yeah exactly yeah. and it's kind of like it's a lot of stairs it's kind of an epic stadium but yeah i don't know what it does other than make your quads really sore i mean i'm assuming it's just kind of a cardio workout for them but i can't imagine that like runners would get more benefit from doing that than doing like some interval workouts so I don't know. I don't have I an answer for you. I mean, but it's a run. It's a run. It's a workout you can do in the middle of Brooklyn. 
which is this chief advantage, <laughs> and it's novel. How many stairs are there at Fort Greene? There's not that it's many. A, no, it's, it's, so it's 100 steps up. Okay. So 40 is and up and down. Stairs? So it's 8,000 up and down. Okay. Which is a good hour on the stairs. Um, and you're tired, mm-hmm. but I don't know whether that matters or is good. Anyway, we did that for years, <laughs> and then we would do, um, yeah, we would run, we would do loops around in the winter. It's a winter workout, loops around the reservoir, which weirdly, this is the thing I don't understand. There's almost nowhere to run in New York, <laughs> and then you go to the only place where you can run in New York, and then if it's, if the temperature is even remotely unseasonal, there is no one on the reservoir at six o'clock on a Tuesday with a, when it's 30 degrees, there's no one on the reservoir. Like this is a city of 8 million people. <laughs> and there are two people who want to run on the reservoir at eight, six o'clock. Like this is, I don't understand this. Where are the runners? <laughs> treadmills, ridic- I guess. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about treadmills? I, uh, I have mixed feelings about treadmills. Okay. Uh, as much as anyone, I hate them, but I, I will only run, I'm a snob now, because my gym has got the woodway. Mm, those are nice. Um, and I used to do a speed workout on in treadmills that I quite liked. Mm. Would you I put w- it in an incline type thing? Or? Well, then I started doing, yeah, I would do them. But then I started doing, when I was injured, I did the, you put the treadmill at max, the 15, and then you just walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I w- but no one could tell me whether that was a good workout either. I just see people at the gym doing that, holding on for dear life. No, no, you don't hold on. That's the whole point. <laughs> They're you probably doing it very <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but it's amazing to me how many things runners do for, for which there, there just is no information about whether it's helping you or hurting. Does it? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you just need to sort of <laughs> leave your house. As long as you leave your house for at least an hour, five times a week, you can get in shape. Mm-hmm. But and uh, I guess like on the one of those runs, you told me that. I think the longest you usually go on some of these runs is sometimes 12 miles. And then I think I said to you, it was like, well, doesn't the, what about like a half marathon? Does it ever appeal to you? And you were like, no. And you, it was because you hate racing. So I guess like, how do you feel about the marathon? You are a big Elliot Kipchoge fan mm-hmm. where you can see someone run 201.39 and it's like this great spectacle, but you would never want to even just tackle that 26.2 mile distance. Well, I think I would... You know, let's be clear. I will remind you, I'm 55 years old. <laughs> I, if I tried to r- do the training necessary to run a decent marathon, I would get injured. A, B. Ed Whitlock would have something different to say. <coughs> What's that? Ed Whitlock would have something different to say Ed, about by the By the way, age. I remember Ed Whitlock from when I was growing up in Canada. Wow. He he was the most, but he you know is a freak of nature. You, you can't <laughs> compare yourself to Ed Whitlock <laughs> and say. It's like saying, well, you know, look at Michael Jordan. You should be able to win six <laughs> rings, too, Malcolm, if you take up basketball. Um, the, I um, also, like, not just the training, though, but uh, the r- actual racing on a hard surface for 26 miles is going to destroy me. Mm. And also, three, it's like, best case scenario, I'm out there for three and a half hours. Three and a half hours. That's <laughs> bananas. Like, I don't know. That would just destroy me for weeks. I don't know. I just find the whole thing crazy. I'll watch it happily, but I would not want to. Like I said, I'm wanting my in my ideal universe. I'm a half miler. That's mm. two minutes and fifteen <laughs> seconds at, at this point in my life. Yeah. Not. But so, what do you make of Nick Thompson's Chicago Marathon? He's a good friend of yours from your days together at the New Yorker, and he just ran Chicago and ran two. 
239, I believe it was, or 238? I think he was faster. He beat faster? me. <laughs> oh, yeah. He yeah. passed Gene, I think, at one point. Oh, he did? Yeah. <laughs> was Just he wearing uh, vapor flies? Four percent, yeah. That's a whole other question. I need to take up with Nick. <laughs> do, you not, do you not believe in the magic of well, the 4% no, no, no. shoes? Uh, my position is, I don't know. I don't have a position. My question is, so let's suppose they are as good as they say they are. Then how is that fair? That some people can afford to buy them and wear them and not everybody's given them. I yeah. mean, it, it, it would be one thing if they conferred a trivial advantage, a minor one that would be significant to someone who was a 201 you know, 50 marathoner and wanted to run 201.48. All right, fine. Yeah. But if it's as massive as they say it is, and I have no idea whether they are, then, like, that's weird. Like, why is that different from doping? I guess I don't have an answer to it, like, apart from there are so many other things that money can buy that are really conducive yeah. to running fast that are allowed, you know, like like proper nutrition. I don't know, like, just having the luxury of sleeping in like eight or nine hours instead of having to work two jobs or something like that so yeah i mean it's it's maybe because it's something you're doing outside of your body instead of like injecting it well, into it's yourself yeah it's i don't know i don't know we need a we need a f we need to put together a panel of philosophers who are also runners to <laughs> rule on this but there is something about the fact that it's not so good nutrition is both an economic opportunity but also a choice. That is to say, it right. requires an element of discipline and knowledge and commitment on my part. Mm. So is training at altitude. It's only available to those who have money, but it also, you gotta train at altitude. You gotta sacrifice to get the, you know, whereas shoes are just, you know, shoes are something that Nike sends you in the mail. Like it just seems really, really, really attenuated from mm. the task of what it means to be an elite athlete. I don't know. I, that's my only, I don't, I mean, listen, I got an email from someone at Nike who wanted to, you know, they, they're like reaching out to runners and want to assist in their training. I'm assuming they're going to, if I did it, they would give me, they would give me a pair of vapor flies, 4%. Would I take them? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, there's no stakes with me. I'm, you know, like I'm not changing any, I'm not breaking any records here. I'm, mm. um, but I'd feel different if I suddenly ran 1740 in vapor flies that would be weird right because i would know i'm not running 1740 in my normal shoes interesting yeah all right so let's uh let's Wait, put I you down yeah. i have one more question <laughs> <laughs> because of how like disbelieving you seemed at the concept of running for three hours yeah. <laughs> i was gonna ask you if you're one of these people that after you started running more than one hour and you got towards two if you kind of were like getting addicted and just kept wanting to add more and more but it seems like the answer is definitely well, no i once ran longer than 12 by accident because i got lost <laughs> i was told there was this great running route like somewhere in long island and i was out on long island and they stopped, went on the great running route, discovered it was not a great running route, <laughs> and then got lost. So I was out there for hours, and I think I ran 16 miles according to my watch. Oh, wow. And, but I was running so slowly by the mm. end. And, um, and then I also, I have actually have a history of getting lost. I once went running in Nashville mm. and got lost in this big park outside Nashville. And it got dark, this is another long story. It got dark. <laughs> and 
I was really lost. Like I had no <laughs> clue where I was. You and were by I yourself. Was, I was not wearing uh, a shirt because it's super hot. <laughs> and <laughs> so it's like nine o'clock at night. It's pitch black. I'm in the middle. I'm not in Nashville. I'm outside of Nashville. And so I am drenched in sweat, wearing only a pair of running shorts. And I'm trying to get a ride back into Nashville. And I go, there's no lights, so I go to a stop sign, because I think people, when they stop, they'll have to stop. And I stand by the stop sign and wave. And like nobody was, was no one stopping. Like this crazy guy. What was your hair like at that time? <laughs> Some serious, this is like two years ago. This is not, this is not like when I was. And finally, and I'll remember this, uh, this uh, 22 or 23 year old woman who was covered in tattoos, who was driving a 20 year old like Honda Civic <laughs> and it was coming from a uh, Bible study. She stopped me. And my first thing I said to her was like, you should not stop. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like, you, this is like, I don't understand what you're doing. This is crazy. Like, <laughs> and as soon as she heard that, she just sped away. <laughs> no, no, I was in the car, buckled in and I was turned to her. And I was like, you know, <laughs> but she was very sweet. It was a good, it was the classic Good, Samar good Samaritan story, right? And these big truck, you know, big guys, big beefy Southern guys in pickup trucks who are twice my weight looked at me and kept driving. <laughs> like they had nothing to fear from me. And the only person who stopped me was the person who I could legitimately have done harm to. But anyway, what was my point? Oh, that run I ran a long way. Um, by, but I, uh, but uh, two hours, I mean, 12 miles. I'm sorry, that is long enough. That's like a long way. Mm-hmm. Actually, in your episode uh, they did on Brian Williams in Revisionist History, you mentioned, I guess, memory, and you said how you keep track of, I guess, like you have a record of where you were, like on, on specific days, mm -hmm. like a, it's a very detailed record. Mm -hmm. So your training logs, mm -hmm. like how detailed are your training logs with runs? Well, pre-Strava, <coughs> when I was a kid, they're very detailed. Mm. Um, I can tell you like exactly the workout I did and, you know, February 6th, 1977. Wow. Um, they're all like in a box somewhere, but <laughs> um, it's kind of fascinating because I went back and I was looking at them. And of course, it's always so disheartening because you realize just how much faster you were. That's the weird thing about running. Like as a 14 year old, when ev in every other respect, I I'm assuming I'm way better than I was at 14, <laughs> except for the fact that 14, my 14-year-old self would kick my ass, my 55-year-old <laughs> self, like, which is so distressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to move into the final questions that we ask every guest. Um, so the first one, your favorite place to run in New York, which <laughs> sounds like it's not in New York, like a little bit outside of the city. Well, no, <clears throat> I think it's... Uh, there's two, I have two uh, nominations. The Aqueduct Trail, I pick it up in, is it Terrytown? Yeah, uh, it starts around go there. North. You can connect it all the way to Van Cortlandt, but I think it's I know, I don't know how to try to do that, and I can't figure it out. Yeah. It gets complicated, you gotta mm -hmm. cross over things. There's like highways. I love that one, and I then you loop into Rockefeller State Park, um, and then there's a rail trail that I do, uh, in just outside of Kingston, New York, near my near where I have a house upstate, hmm. which is divine. I mean, as good as running gets in this region. Nice. Um, do you have a perfect New York City day? Like something that you would just, if you had a 
day completely to yourself, no obligations, what would that look like? I would uh, go to a coffee shop in the morning and write, mm. and then I would have uh, lunch, and then I would, uh, the chief things that make the day great are that I don't have to talk to anyone, <laughs> <laughs> and that I can get some, have some solitude, and then I can have, and then in the evening would end, would have a, would have some kind of vigorous run, whether mm. it's probably, I wouldn't mind a day where I didn't talk to anyone until I went to my, but even at track workouts, I don't really speak to anyone. I'm not very chatty in group mm. settings. Mm. Um, but the idea, but, I, but at least I would be around people doing something. Um, that's pretty, that's a pretty ideal. I like it, and the day would be super hot because I love mm. particularly running in really hot weather. It's my, one of my favorite things. Um, with your ad reads, you're, you mentioned how you only drink a couple of, uh, I think, what is it, five liquids? Five liquids. That was in one of my episodes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are, so it's water, coffee, coffee, tea, milk in coffee or tea, red wine, and water. Mm -hmm. That's it. Wow. So are you a picky eater? Like pizza? Do you no. do pizza? No pizza. No. Did you ask about pizza? Yeah, yeah. Do you eat pizza? Sure. Okay, so look, our question is, I guess, best pizza spot in New York City. Oh, best pizza spot in New York City. Uh, well, there's one, I mean, it's by, I'm not giving you a proper, there's one near my house <laughs> that's really good. It just started. Um, it's called, uh, oh my God, I've forgotten what it's called. It's on Perry Street and Greenwich Avenue. Uh, it, has, um, this w it has pork belly pizza which I've never had before, which is bananas. Mm. And it's really good. Um, Rosemary's, Rosemary's Pizza. Because oh, there's a Rosemary's restaurant, now there's a Rosemary's Pizza, mm. which has pork belly pizza, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Cool. Um, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen on a subway in New York? Seen on the subway? Yeah, while you were riding the train. Or I guess waiting for it on the platform. Um, well, you know, we've all seen disgusting Yes. Yeah. yeah uh, maybe maybe something that <laughs> struck you as bizarre. Something you've only ever seen once. Uh, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. I don't ride, you know, I so rare, I ride my bicycle everywhere around the city. And I'm not a, and I rarely, and if, in, and, and if not, I don't really leave my neighborhood. I'm not a big, so I'm not on the subway as much as because I don't commute anywhere. Mm. So my subway memories are limited. But I do, I know my favorite thing on the subway is when you can identify, when people, you can sort of see, like, like when you get on the subway and you see that every woman is reading Michelle Obama's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> memoirs. Like there's all of those kinds of subway moments when mm. you see a kind of thing happening collectively. Um, those are my kind of, I mean, I did actually get on the subway recently and, see like every woman was reading wow. not every woman but i mean <laughs> enough that it was like you're like whoa like <laughs> lots of people are buying this book <laughs> right? you're hoping it's your book in a couple of months um <laughs> uh, so we usually ask yankees or mets but i guess y you probably don't root for either one i right? gave up on the blue blue jays uh <laughs> that's right broke my heart and uh, but not the expos you weren't an expos guy no i'm because i grew up outside toronto mm -hmm. um I found cheering for a baseball team so painful because mm. the pain is so um, uh, 
uh, attenuated. It's like they drag it out over anything. <laughs> and like, it's just I couldn't take the suffering. And so I, I gave up the sport. I haven't really been a fan for many years. Mm. Okay, we always have, actually, I have one more question I want to ask you. You might not have an answer to it. That's fine. But I recently heard one of my favorite radio producers talk about how they come up with stories by having um, Google alerts for very specific phrases that they say. Oh, my God. That's so genius. <laughs> well, maybe I'm just giving you an idea then. Um, so I'm assuming you don't have any Google alerts. No. <laughs> but their, one of their phrases was, like, bizarre but extremely intelligent or, like, bizarre but genius or something like that. Um, so do you have any, like, s phrases that you think would lead to stories you'd be really interested in researching? Well, um, it's funny you mention this because when I was at the Washington Post years ago, we had a contest to see who could get the phrase raises new and troubling questions into the <laughs> newspaper the most in a one-month period. <laughs> and I feel like it's been used <laughs> a lot recently. <laughs> and so uh, we had that contest, and then which I lost at the very, very last. <laughs> I think I lost like four to three. Oh. And then we had a new That's contest. That's not that much. I guess like you, you didn't want to be over the top about it. <laughs> it's, you can do a lot with that. But then we realized that was too easy because too many things. So we had another phrase, which was really hard, and that was perverse and often baffling. And <laughs> wow. it is really hard to get perverse and often baffling into a newspaper. <laughs> but uh, so that was a... Um, I have some experience in these unusual phrases, mm -hmm. but I will sometimes do phrase searches on academic databases for words like paradox mm. or, you know, like just anytime someone is, because is, that is a, usually a clue that something unusual is going on. But I don't do the, I don't play a Google alert game. I feel like maybe that's something I should add to my repertoire, particularly mm. since I'm panicking at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, you could. Okay, and then our real, actual last question is that we usually ask the former guest, the last person we recorded with, to ask a question to our next guest. So in this instance, we recorded with Parker Fireback or Firebach. I asked them how to pronounce it and still can't remember. But um, they asked you, what's one story or one thing you know or that you've learned either about running or just more broadly, I kind of guess about the world we're living in that you were blown away by and kind of want to share with people listening. Oh. I'm paraphrasing that, <laughs> but I think that's maybe. Yeah, it was pretty much like, what, I what do you think you know about running that no one else really knows or, or understands or feels? Oh, or about being human. That was the other part. <laughs> so it's quite broad. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll stick to the, to the about, <laughs> do I know anything about running that other people don't know? Um, I don't think I know anything that no one else knows. I mean, I maybe I care differently about. Um, I, I mean, I suppose I would answer it this way: that I, on the, I would say this: that if you polled lots of, on the question of how efficient um, running search is. So how many of the people in our world who, in America right now, who can run a six-minute mile, uh, who are capable of running a six-minute mile, actually run a six-minute mile? Hmm. I am very strongly on a side that says the number who are capable, given the opportunity, 
is enormous. Hmm. Is and it was I think that the distribution of the amount of untapped running talent in a country like the United States is vast and growing vaster every year. I think we every, as each year passes we get worse and worse at capturing um uh at, at exploiting the amount of available running talent. Interesting. Um, and I would take a, I take it I would say I take an extreme position on this view. Um, and um, why yeah. do you think that it continues to get worse as each year passes? Do you think that other sports are doing a better job of recruiting those people that would become runners? A smaller percentage of people are even in a position to want to figure out whether they like running. Hmm. Who try you know people for various reasons. Um, part of it is uh, is the rising obesity rates that basically once people are above a certain weight, it becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. Like risk of, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't even occur to many people or that that whole, the whole notion of running gets written off as an activity. I think we al also are losing the, so there's a smaller pool of people who I think are willing to take athletic activity seriously. And then within that pool, I think we're losing out to um, other uh, mm. sports. I mean, you just look at what's happened to American marathoning, male marathoning in particular. Yeah. It's like the country's got, uh, you know, I don't know how many more people than it did in the 70s. And yet um, the number of elite marathoners, I mean, I know we have good depth, but the number of people who can run 210, right. it's like, it's astonishingly small. Mm -hmm. You know, if you conducted a, an experiment. It's one guy right now. <laughs> it's one guy. But if, like, if you conducted an experiment and you took every baby born in 1995 hmm. and you kidnapped them and put them in a large and you've made them all run, right? <laughs> so how, so this, is, this, is, this is the thought oh, experiment. Oh, no. Oh, God. Every American baby in, born in 1995 is kidnapped, <laughs> raised in a training camp, and we see how many... Two ten milers can we get out of that group, right? Now I would say, I would say you get, uh, and we're assuming optimal training over the course <laughs> of their life. Nobody quits; they all love running. Are they winning four percent? They're winning. We can get them four percent. Nike funds the whole thing, right? So this is like we're going first class all the way. I'm saying we get a thousand two ten marathoners. Wow. Wow. A thousand's a lot. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, that sounds crazy. I know, but look. I mean, look how many 210 marathoners. So Kenya has a system where sort of pretty close to that, where like if you are <laughs> at all interested in running, <laughs> or a better example is Jamaica. Jamaica's got a system close to that. If you're, if you're even remotely interested in sprinting in Jamaica, you sprint. Hmm. My, my cousin's uh, elementary school in Jamaica has its own sprint coach, elementary school. Wow. <laughs> like, so they're doing that experiment. And what happens? A country with the 2 million people basically has the best sprinters in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So that, just extrapolate from that. We have, we got, they, they, they can produce, let's say, 25 uh, male and female world-class sprinters from a population of <coughs> 2 million. So I'm saying, maybe 1,000 is too high, but America <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, has a hundred times as many people as that. Mm -hmm. So how many world-class marathoners should we be able to produce? A lot, Yeah. right? Look how many come out of Japan. Yeah. Insane numbers, right? True. Um, so- Okay, I'm taking, 
Thousands too many. Five hundred. <laughs> Uh, so I guess we'll, a couple more weeks of physical therapy, and then we'll have you back at practice. I'm I I will be there. I should be there. I think I'll be there in two weeks. Oh wow, yeah. nice. And then after that, it's all sights set on uh, what is it? Let's let's put maybe Brooklyn Miles Senior uh, like the the Masters race. I would love to run that this year. Yeah, I think they moved it up to June. Oh, oh wow. is it downhill or uphill? It's a little bit of both. I think. Oh, I, I. It's not that. And fast. and it, the course is long. Yeah, it wasn't fast for <laughs> a course say, last year. I saw the times. So I was like, well, I was told this was a fast course. <laughs> I don't think it was. I think it was longer than a mile last year. And I PR'd, so I was like pretty happy. I would like them to fix the leg thing before. <laughs> we'll let them know. Yeah. Okay. Malcolm, thanks so much for taking Thank the time you. to do this. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Thanks again to Malcolm for taking the time to do that interview. If you want to find him on Instagram, he's at Malcolm Gladwell. On Twitter, he's just at Gladwell. And he's got a new book called Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know that's supposed to come out in September. So keep your eyes peeled on any news regarding that book and check it out when it does. I can't wait for that one. And as for us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Runners of NYC. And you can always support the podcast by tossing it some love on iTunes with a five-star review. That would be awesome. And again, thanks so much to Custom Performance. This episode was brought to you by them. They are located at 295 Madison Avenue, and we'll be sure to include all of their info in our show notes. And if you go, which you should, tell them Chris and Jean sent you. And if you're new to the podcast, you can always go back and listen to all our previous episodes. So that includes... Joe Donato, Leanne Sherrick, David Perry, Caitlin Phillips, Hector Espinal, Allison Desir, and most recently Parker Firebach. So uh, yeah, I think that's we're we're starting to get to we're close to episode ten. Yeah, it's a long list to go through all those people. It's pretty good. All right, well yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Mm-hmm.